Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you very much for joining me. Today, we have a great conversation in store with someone who's had a varied career but a career with a couple of key moments and key challenges, which I'm really looking to explore around how do you manage the story at a time when everyone's losing their heads around you? And it's massively challenging. And I know in public sector communications, uh, crises is something that we all deal with. So we're going to talk to someone who really understands exactly what that looks like. But as we do each week, we start with the definition of just precisely what it is that we're talking about. So content communication is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content. The purpose is to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a desired citizen and or stakeholder action. So that is the practice and the process of content communication. But to my guest today, it's Alison Wright, who's the director or assistant director, I should say, of engagement and development at the National Gallery of Australia. Alison has a great career. She started with a Diploma of Fine Arts from the Western Australian School of Art and Design. And I'm really interested in talking to her about that just in a moment. But then it was a shift into journalism, working in the ABC, but then a variety of communication and strategy jobs. Uh, Visteon, Director of uh, Public Affairs, Head of Marketing and Communications at the National Gallery of Australia. She was also the General Manager of Marketing and Communications for the Australian Grand Prix Corporation and also a Managing Partner at Red Bridge communications. But she joins me now in the studio. And Alison, thanks very much for coming and to be in transition. Thank you very much. So listen, take me back to that fine art degree. How did you find your way into into that world originally? What was it that sort of motivated you and what were you hoping to discover about yourself and about the world through that art and design course? I love telling this story because I always think that we're, we're often so... Um, linear in the way we think when kids are going through school and choosing what they've got to do. And I just threw myself into sort of more performing arts and theatre arts when I was at school. When you are at school, Did okay. a disaster, had a disastrous school when I left <laughs> and said to myself, wow. Didn't have enough numbers to get into university or Pretty to... Pretty much didn't get into NIDA. Let's just okay. leave it there. Right didn't get into NIDA first step. So I said, right, I'm going to go and do, I was quite good at art and I'm going to go and do this fine arts degree. And it really was, I think, a, a very, looking back, a very defining moment because there were an enormous amount of mature age students in my degree. Okay. And it kind of forced that really early learning. Art is an amazing vehicle to look at a world in a different way. You know, art history teaches us so much. I was looking at contemporary art practice. I ended up being a sculpture major, painting minor. I threw myself into it. I was working, the school that was, um, that I worked through had a lot of practising artists as teachers. And so I really felt my whole world opened up. But towards the end of it, I was 
desperately worried about being poor. You know, and I think it's a conversation that a lot of artists, you know, have because it's an enormous struggle to follow the pursuit of art and be that passionate and continue forward. And and perhaps I wasn't, uh, I didn't have the courage for it. I'm not so sure. I had okay. other skills. So I, I actually... But went... it, it was a conversation with your fellow colleagues where they were, oh. and perhaps even the more mature age people, were they saying, hey, look, this art thing's great and it's given you a, a great perspective and different skills, but maybe it's not going to put food on the table? I think there was the understanding that the business of art is incredibly difficult. We were in Western Australia. Yeah. Uh, you know, how the, the size of the market there, what that meant, that, you know, the pursuit of becoming a full-time art practitioner and supporting yourself through that way is so difficult in mm. Australia. And there's a lot of trends even now where, you know, we're seeing we're seeing the art market in Asia changing. You know, Europe is incredibly Eurocentric, but to be a practicing artist in Australia, which is why when they when you do see practicing artists work, it is it is like an, a rare treat. You know, these are people that have per- given their lives to the pursuit of their passion. I unfortunately, and it doesn't really make me sound that great, didn't <laughs> seem to have the courage to continue. Although I've since gone on and continued to practice art, and I've had actually had a couple of exhibitions. But that's by the by. Okay. Um, and I. But went, take take me to that moment when you you said, okay, you know, leave courage to one side. I think sort of you know reality arrives. What was that like? What was the consideration and what skills did you think that you'd acquired and how did you think that you were going to apply them in a way that was going to create value for a a potential employer? I decided that I was making a permanent change. So I knew in that final year and I actually engaged somebody to prepare me for, I suppose, a broadcasting career. And I worked with that person over six months. I, I, while I was studying art, I was also, you know, throwing myself into what would what was then the world of journalism. You know, we read seven newspapers a day. I was practicing my broadcasting skills and getting ready for, you know, ultimately an audition into somewhere and 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 working in in that area. But the, but they're the practical, you know, tools of the trade. You know, improving your vocabulary, being able to write effectively. Um, broaden your knowledge so as that you're able to, you know, pick things up very quickly. But what skills or what knowledge or what attitude or what did you bring from the fine arts that you were able to bring to journalism that helped you to tell better stories? Yeah, I think art, I think that whole three years allowed you to constantly question and see the world in a bigger and open way. And I think in Australia, I always knew that I would live overseas and work overseas in another area. I always knew I would do a lot of things in my career, not one thing. And I always knew I was a pretty okay storyteller. And so the art is that vehicle. It allows you to see up and out of where Mm. you are and you connect into whole other ways of thinking that are not your own. Artists have this incredible way of telling their own stories through visuals. And it was that that experience that just made me really expand my thinking. And I've been a very open thinker pretty much since that day. (laughs) How depressing was it then when you arrived in a newsroom and you realised that <laughs> no one's looking up and out. Everyone's looking in, and everyone's looking at the top of the clock. And it's it's a, just a different way of, of of movement. You know, information moves in a you know in a linear 
time directed, top of the clock, particularly in radio where it's like, okay, we just got to get this bulletin up and out. I think I had the most wonderful entry into radio. My first job was I was working in the Midwest of Western Australia in a town called Geraldton. Oh, yeah. I was the okay. newsroom, I was the journalist, the one and only journalist for two commercial radio stations. I had the full remit. I got to write and do all of the investigation work for the stories and then broadcast that. I also did a bit of um, on-air broadcasting on the weekend so I would get to know what my colleagues were sort of familiarising themselves with. And we, back in goddamn when was it, 1998, (laughs) uh, 1996, we were the first radio station in Australia to go digital. I actually learnt my craft in 96 in digital and I went back into metropolitan cities and had to go and learn on tape and all sorts of other more archaic methods. So I had, in that year, I had three amazing stories break which included a German windsurfer went missing and was eaten by a shark. I had a key crown witness was murdered. There were enormous stories and so I got a chance to sort of cut my teeth, albeit as naive as I very was. I was very naive. Um, But I really learned very fast and very quickly and then went into bigger newsrooms where I had a lot of success and I had a lot of fun. You know, I think news moves very fast. So the ability to tell a a story in a very succinct way was something that I I was loving and it was not long before I was a crime reporter for radio at the ABC and then I moved into television and television's a whole other matter and... It's good fun. Yeah. So indeed this this transition and this journey, that this story that you tell, so out of the regionals, you know, like most of us, you know, I was exactly the same, you know, many of us have been on the same journey through regions into the capital cities and into the journalism. Did you think that you were going to, to stay in journalism or did you always think that there was that next part of your career which was going to go into more broader storytelling on behalf of um, private sector organisations um, and, 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 and others? I honestly believed I was going to be a journalist for the rest of my life. I loved being a journalist. It was the most enthralling, best grounding I ever got for a professional career. And I found myself in the ABC loving it. I dreamed of being a foreign correspondent. I was in Sydney. I had done some stories for 7.30 Report, not a lot, but enough to give me a taste of really where my career could go. And one day somebody congratulated me on a milestone at being at the ABC. And they said, you know, that's it. You're a lifer. The guys in Sydney, are, they're on to you. This is it. Your, your career is on its way. And I quit six weeks later and got <laughs> on a plane to Shanghai. But, and what was that? Was that the fear of being a lifer, of being yeah, someone I, who is connected to, you know, the permanence and the comfort and the conditions and the... You know, one of the things that can be so frustrating about, um, and I think back back in those days, you know, obviously I'm not at the ABC now, but I think, and even in government, some of the slow aspects of the the machine of those organisations uh, became frustrating for yeah. me. And I was chief of staff for yeah. for a year, and I and I loved doing that, and and the moving fast, and and I could start to see my skill set change as well. And you know, the management of being a chief of staff, you've got 50, 50 people, it's you've got crews, you're mo- moving through crises, and how much I enjoyed that decision making, and I. I think it was that I was 
absolutely terrified of being like everyone else, of staying in the same place. And like I said to you before, I think I, I've always had a very innate knowledge that I would do many things and that I would not do them in the one spot. Sure. So was it that sense that the, the challenge was exhausted, that you'd probably learnt what you were going to learn having had that job and that you needed to do more or you wanted to do more or you felt you wanted to do more? I think it was more that, you know, worlds were colliding and everything was saying move now. You know, I was turning 28 and this was an opportunity. I had reached a really great point in the world that I was in and if I wanted to, it was it was going to be Sydney. If, if I was going to take my career further in journalism, there was no doubt I would need to be in TV Current Affairs and move to Sydney. And I just picked China instead. Okay. Yeah. So, so why China and what did you do in China? Great. I always think I should have a much better answer for why China. <laughs> Um, Tickets were cheap. Um, Someone said you should go to Shanghai. I think I didn't at that stage think I would stop being a journalist and I saw China as a place that I could be a journalist, uh, one of the hardest places in the world, without um, being in a war zone. So I went, let's just almost, it was a really like I'm going to take a one-way ticket mentality. Yeah, okay. And I got there and within 24 hours I met, literally bumped into... Bob Cronin, who's the former editor-in-chief of the West Australian newspaper, and I'd interviewed Bob in his foray into federal politics. So I got out of the lift and of a building and I, I bumped into him and he said, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, no, I think what the hell are you doing here is more the question. <laughs> he was working on a project for Kerry Stokes for the Shanghai Daily Newspaper. It's the only English language newspaper at that stage. He begged me to come and work for him. He'll love me for saying that. And I reluctantly said yes. And I started working and we, we were trying to get the paper to be more commercial. I started working in the features department and within – I didn't work there for very long because the what we used to call at the ABC, the dark side came calling. Yes. And the best part about my career is that I found out that the dark side is not dark <laughs> yeah. at all. Yeah, no, indeed. I'm, a, I'm, again, like you, former ABC who's been in the dark side for, for the last – 20-odd years and it's... And it's very light, isn't it? It's the most ridiculous notion of all time. But anyway, we'll leave that to one side. We could get lost in an ABC conversation. But again, what skills have you been able to, to transition from that journalism background into this sort of storytelling on behalf of other organisations. What is it that as a journalist you've been able to bring that's been a real strength of you being able to add value? It's almost singular, a fearless ability to ask questions and to ask the right questions. Okay. That's a, that's a good answer. Yeah. Thanks. Let's explore that a little bit more though, to ask questions, to have the courage to ask questions. Do you think that you, having not sort of been brought up into the organisations up through the levels, that you came in at a level where it's like it was obvious and clear that that's the only way that you could create value was to, you know, uncover the truth of whatever situation you were in? Well, I was very fortunate. I worked, I went straight from journalism into a senior executive position. So, you know, I joined a company that uh, was very, very troubled. It had been spun off from Ford. It was a car parts manufacturer. Um, Spun off from Ford in 2000, hadn't made a dollar in four years. It had 70,000 employees. And and the Asian operation had gone from two to four billion in 18 months. So it's this wild, massive moving New York Stock Stock Exchange listed company. And for me, I, I got a chance to sort of 
immediately step into a leadership role. And because I was doing that in a world where it was very masculine and there were um, most of my peers, so the directors of the company that I was a, a, an executive with were 20 years my senior. Right. So when we talk about asking questions, I think at that stage of a career, it would be very, you'd, you'd be forgiven, right, for not actually saying, oh, I think I'm just going to hold back on that question because it doesn't sound particularly smart. You know, I think that we deploy in our professional lives enormous filters and I see it every day and I've seen it all throughout out my career. And one of the things that I do not do is deploy those filters. And that has assisted me as I've taken on you know, very senior roles with a lot of responsibility because I'm simply not interested in the filter because it's cutting out a lot of time. But also it doesn't enable a truth-telling environment. So that kind of ability mm. to... It's less about the courage and more about the fearlessness. It's just mm. this question needs to be asked. I've also been... Whenever I get asked this in um, interviews, I, I've also been very unafraid to say what I don't know. And I think that that level of vulnerability or mm. the ability to say I'm an exceptionally fast learner, so let's just talk about what I don't know here. Explain to me what I don't know. Mm. Um, and I think that I've seen that in the great CEOs and presidents that I've worked for and great chairmans as well. Mm. They're the people that just lay that down on the line and there's nothing behind it. It's not loaded. We've got a, a, a lot of people in this audience are people who work in government. Uh, very hierarchical organisations and this this sense of being of upsetting people by being direct, by seeking the truth, by asking those hard questions uh, in a bureaucratic structure can be challenging. So what advice would might you have for people who are who are in pursuit of that knowledge that they need to do their job and they know that they have to ask the question, but it's very hard to do so. What advice might you be able to give to them or encouragement you might may be able to give to them so as that they can ask the questions? I mean, you should know that I'm a rule breaker and a risk taker from way back. So anyone listening to my advice would go, right, she's actually, that's her DNA. Um, and I'm absolutely was born to sort of challenge the professional worlds and actually take organisations through periods of change. And that's the challenge that I love. My encouragement would be, you know, that that's a very authentic place to come from. So if that, that is something that you're wanting to do in your workplace, you know, being authentic around it and saying, well, you know, I'm just going to sit back and let somebody else ask that question isn't actually delivering kind of your true self for want of mm. sounding like a self-help book. Yeah. You know, it, you've really... You've really, if that's a calling that you've got, if there's something in there, then you've got to pursue that yeah. because... Um, but, you owe it to, but you ultimately owe it to the organisation. If you're getting paid to do your job, you have to bring your full self, don't you? And, and you really have that. to have that courage to be able to say, well, listen, actually, I don't understand it or I really need to ask a few more questions and it may be a bit difficult. I might look a bit stupid, but I really do need to know that to be able to create the value. For sure. And one can never understate the importance of what it means to continually value that you're paid for by the public yeah. and their taxes. Yeah. And if you never forget that, and I think a lot of people do, if you the weight of that actually can force you to be better at your job. Yeah. You know, we run an organisation that is given money to buy art. 
you know, the decision-making, the depth of care that goes into every single dollar, I can proudly say, is actually yeah. is really robust yeah. um, and, and as it should be. Sure. Um, but it's a p- perhaps an encouraging point around, you know, this is not just a job and an organisation with... You know, there's a service element to it as well. No question. Now, listen, we could talk forever about all sorts of different things, but I'm keen that we get to this crisis management and communication in a crisis because you were involved in one of the most, you know, notorious cases uh, around um, art provenance in Australia where the National Gallery of Australia bought... um, this uh, Shiva is the Lord of the Dance uh, bronze statue from someone. And anyway, let, not let me tell the story. How about you tell the story and, and we'll just sort of go into this sense of the crisis and then how did you manage that crisis? But how about a bit of background and then, then we'll, get, we'll take it from there. Sure. So I've, I've really, I suppose... I have quite a bit of experience in in crisis communications. <laughs> I've done a lot of different roles. Things going wrong. Things going wrong. It's always a great time to sort of step in. Um, That's so, actually not a bad. Actually, to, sorry to interrupt you there, but that I've often found that that when things go wrong, if you're the person in the room who is prepared to say, "Well, actually, I'm going to move at this moment." That's a big opportunity sometimes, isn't it? That you yeah. do step forward rather than, I'm, you know, I'm not going to own this situation because I mightn't have created it. Absolutely. And there's often such complex stakeholder environments as well that there can be limited opportunities for you that to do that or it it is definitely an opportunity and one that I feel are very comfortable in that space. So anyone thinking about <laughs> crisis management, think about being in a crisis and how you react in them and if you're really comfortable in that, you can often deploy some great skills. Most people go to water. Most people lose that really great thing that happens in the eye of a storm, which is total stillness. Yeah. Uh, for me, um, the gallery called and asked for some support to navigate a, a period of time and I came to do that. And this was at the end of 2014. So it was on the back of really three years of of this issue. And, you know, we can sit here and argue about whether they did a good or a bad or an indifferent job about managing it. At the end of the day, there's a dealer that uh, we believe and we are very clear that we're the victims of fraud who sold us a whole lot of work, uh, is currently awaiting trial in India. And, you know, so there hasn't been a judgment on that. Um, And we do believe in the presumption of innocence. And yet we've got all this other evidence. There's a stack of statues that have got claims around them. And we're trying to unpick the whole thing. What my role, I was... I had an opportune moment and I think that that can't be sort of understated, overstated enough. I had a director that was leaving and a new director that was coming on board. So the ability to make change at that point, because I certainly am not criticising previous colleagues or anyone that's kind of tried to unpick and navigate something so complex. Um, with the... with. Jared Vaughan coming on board as a new director, he and I had a very similar philosophy around how we wanted to manage it and that was something that actually we discussed on the day he was announced. So I knew that there was a an alignment there and because it's not just about managing the message, I would say truth is the only defence. Um, 
managing messages is just really you just open yourself up for conversations around spin. Yeah. And at this stage of the game, we're three years into that trajectory. We've just handed back, Tony Abbott handed back a $5 million sculpture to India. We've got a very serious situation. So what we did was we worked on a sort of four-week program to dive into the issue and understand the extent of it then also look to a whole strategy around what remedy looked like and with a commitment to the people of Australia that we would have within four weeks of Jared's tenure an announcement around what that might look like. And it was a daily, uh, a sort of daily focus for the whole organisation to really to really get into that. And we, we've had a lot of success in, I suppose, not necessarily dealing with the comm side of it, the, mm. the content, it's much more about actually we've negotiated a, a refund, we've got two other works that have gone back, we've got closer ties with India, we're in conversations with them and we launched an investigation on not just the works that we thought might be suspect, we also launched an investigation to the entire gallery of... Asian art. So what you're suggesting the there, though, is really in the management of the crisis was to understand the, the problem and the context around the problem to then build and design the solution and then it's at that point where you start to consider how you're going to tell that story. But you can't tell the story until you've got the solution or the design of the solution clearly articulated. I think so, but you can you can define the solutions timeline, which in many respects is what uh, those that are critical of you um, are calling for. So the criticism that the NGA had was around transparency and was around so sharing of information and around what are you going to do and when. But, it, but at the same time, that, and I get that, but the media are saying, you've, you know, what is the answer now? What is the solution today? You know, they're not interested in you saying, well, this is going to take us 18 or months or 12, you know, whatever it is. They, you know, they want someone's head on a stick. So how do you manage that? So you say what we're going to do, we're first of all, we're making a commitment to sharing information. Transparency. And, yeah. And I think that... Um, it's a very overused word, right? Transparency? Yeah, we hear it all the time. Yeah, it means lots of different things. But when you live and breathe it, so you want a document, we'll give it to you. You want to understand what this uh, particular dealer was looking for in this paragraph that you've read, we'll give that to you. We started sharing documents with journalists that wanted them. <laughs> I, I can almost hear the collective intake of breath from people listening going, what? Yeah. You did What? Like, it, it, that's hard. Well, my aim was <laughs> when you've got a backlog of freedom of information requests. Yeah, right. So my view was... Yeah, we're NGA, getting eaten alive. I want zero yeah. freedom of information requests. Yeah. And I can hand on heart tell you we've had zero since then on yeah. this issue. Yeah. So that is... What about other issues? Let's <laughs> <laughs> not go there, David. We're sort of transparent. <laughs> no, look, we have, we have FOIs on lots of things and we have a whole... <laughs> series of processes that we go through to answer them. Yeah. But for this particular issue, we had to mean yeah. and do exactly what we've said from Jared Vaughan's um, yeah. But you had to break something, didn't it? You actually had to do something because it was an absolute weeping sore. It was. That could not be contained by the drip of, you know, because there was, as you say, there was continued... Um, questions about the next piece and the next piece and the next piece. And it was, I, I get what you're saying, is that that, 
you know, you had to, you had to do something radical to, to get an outcome. And I, th- and I think we did that. Um, it doesn't mean that stories are not going to come forward. The other thing that we did was build better relationships. So a yep. lot of those relationships with the critics, particular journalists, you know, we, we got inside their world. You know, I spent a lot of time with them. I shared information. Um, those stories were written and that's life. We've got it. I think the other thing that is often thought about in crisis management is that zero stories or zero coverage is the picture of success. We've got an issue. Mm. Let's be unafraid about how we are managing it because we believe in what we're doing in terms of correcting it. So those stories will come. And as long as they're accurate and we're working with those journalists to ensure that they are accurate and we're telling the truth, then we shouldn't be afraid of them. Just a final question on this particular issue. Um, How important was your credibility, your individual credibility, the person who was on the other end of the phone talking to the journalists, how much of a success factor was it that they knew who you were and perhaps they trusted you to, to give them, to tell them the truth? And trust is only earned in these situations. So it wasn't given at the outset. And a lot of um, the criticism that we were receiving was as a result of some broken trust relationships. So I had to earn that back on behalf of the organisation. Um, I'm a very straight shooter. So I will not, you know, I deliver. And yep. those people got to learn that I do that and that meant something. Now, those individual channels, those face-to-face channels, those relationships and other things, uh, I think I got that in my head, how that was managing. But how then did you use the other channels, you know, the offline channels of perhaps events, uh, public relations, maybe even some advertising, the social channels? What was the other mix uh, of channels and, and content that you were you, that you were moving out to sort of start to move the story on, you know, to resolution? Well, I suppose the strategy wasn't to spend a whole lot of time doing lots of positive stories. Yeah. One of my least favourite strategies that I see from communication managers across the country is that they're facing an issue but um, there might be board involvement or executive involvement they feel the pressure to then push out across whatever channel it is a series of positive stories. Yeah. What we did was recognise that the first quarter of this of, of this tenure for the new director but also for me that the first quarter was going to be Ugly. Knee, knee deep in it. Yes. And, like, and actual fact, by February, so this was December, by February we had announced that we had got a $1.1 million refund of a work from a dealer. I th- we're pretty sure it's a precedent in Australia. We, had, we were ready to return to other works. We had completed the research on that. We'd established an investigation team. Everything was on the website. So I think for us... That wasn't, we're not sort of seeing that as a positive message. We're seeing those as actions. What we then did was focus on exhibitions. And at the time, there was a great, fantastic exhibition called James Terrell. So that's what I, it's business as usual. Yeah. Just keep focused on business as usual. But interestingly, I think also though, the key to your success is, was around the management of expectations of all of the stakeholders around this. So I'm sure you were communicating very clearly that this is going to be difficult but this is how we're going to get to the end point. And as soon as everyone knew and understood that that was what the case was, then, okay, as long as that was managed through and you were delivering at the various milestones, then the confidence would come in that, okay, 
Alison's got this under control. Stakeholder management's completely key. I am very bossy. <laughs> so as far as... You will sit down and listen and I will tell you. Well, great crisis managers will also tell you that if they're not taking your counsel, your ability to influence that crisis is limited. Yeah, yeah, very true. And it's not a comms issue. It's an all of organisation issue. So this is not the comms person walking in and saying, how do we create this content? This is about an executive shaping the actions of the organisation. If you don't have it that way and you've just got somebody in your media department trying to influence it, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. Now, listen, we've only got a few minutes left, but I do want to look to the future. I do want to sort of understand... the future is bright. (laughs) (laughs) The future is bright. The future is fantastic. But I think from a, you know, the story of the National Gallery of Australia, you know, the art collections are stories. There is a story in every piece, you know, in every tile, in every brushstroke. There's something there to get out. How are you taking advantage of the fact that you have, you are sitting on this reservoir of, of, of stories that you are hoping to use and influence? What's the strategy for the National Gallery to, to get out there and, and get people to engage around, you know, the histories and the stories of us, not only Australia, but other, other cultures that are, that are part of the, the fabric of the National Gallery? Mm, Great question. I mean, so much has changed in the last two and a half years for the NGA. I think its brand is evolving in a way that is truly spectacular. And a lot of that is based in a strategy around change. So, you know, the the idea that we would... uh, have the same works on the wall at all times. The And, you know, I'm a lover of change. So we now have regular changeovers of permanent collection. We're looking, we market the whole gallery experience. And I suppose we're also creating uh, content and looking forward at what um, our, our online and digital space means, because really that's where the growth in audience mm. is going to be. And how well are you doing that at the moment? Well, I think I think there's some great questions being asked. I think we're formulating really good strategies around I think we're getting much better at, at selling the whole proposition. Yep. Um, we are moving towards being a content-driven organisation. We are not quite there yet. The whole of the gallery is actually content-making and getting everybody yeah. to understand that yeah. and drive that. Um, That's exciting. That must be a wonderful sort of journey to be able to... Give, get everyone involved because that, to me, is the key. Everyone has to be a part of it. Completely and empowered to create Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And, and get it out there. Well, and you think of how many things. smart people and talented people and great storytellers who are sitting there and this sense of, oh, you know, the communications department. It's like forget the communications department. It's everybody's responsibility. We now have this ability and we really have to empower everybody to get out there and, and communicate because they can do it. The NGA's greatest asset is actually not its art, it's its people. Sure. Yeah. Without a doubt, the 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 true great brains and think thought leaders and people who've got amazing ideas and are delivering public programs and festivals. I mean, the question that we face, I suppose, as a really macro level on an industry wide, is what is the museum of the future? And I definitely don't have that answer today. 
but I think we're asking ourselves, what is the museum of the future? What is it going to look like? How do we adapt and be nimble enough to work with consumer trends around technology, around funding, around partnerships and galleries and collaborations? So it's a very exciting time mm. to be working in an organisation that is content rich. And yes. we've seen that with, you know, the Netflixes of the world. Mm. Like we know we're con- where you own content, mm. you've actually got the power to garner an enormous amount of support in the community and across Australia and globally as well. So we know that and I think we've some way to getting to where we want to be. Indeed. Uh, but I'm sure that um, through making this change um, and I can feel the momentum, I can feel the change, I can feel the, you know, the, the, that intentional uh, movement towards you know, greater action and activity. But in that there are going to be mistakes. People are going to make missteps. They're going to make, you know, wrong calculations. How do you manage that? And do you have permission to fail? You know, people often say, you know, we hear from great, you know, yes, you know, get out there, experiment, test, learn. But the reality sometimes in organisations is, well, it's great. You can experiment until you make a mistake and then we're going to, you know, smash you at Senate estimates and you're going to have to answer all these questions. I often use the senator's <laughs> question as to whether or not I can hand on heart say this is worth it. Yeah. Um, you, you've got to be able to empower your people to make mistakes. You know, we just did an evaluation with some with an organisation that we partnered with and while I don't think it was a mistake, like we didn't necessarily get the objective that we wanted out of it. Yeah. But could we pivot and change and do something even more valuable? Yes, we can. So I... I have a real philosophy across the, the, the portfolio, particularly in the area that we're working in, marketing, communications, membership. If you are not trying to do new things and different things, you're not actually doing the right thing. No, no. And, and if you don't, you, you know, very soon you will be, you know, resigned to... You know, irrelevance and because because you'll be static and, and static is death. Static is no good. Yeah. All right, Alison, thank you so much for uh, finding your way to uh, our offices here in the heart of uh, the Australian capital, Canberra. A little bit hard to find content groups sometimes, but uh, if you're ever in the neighbourhood, come and see us, level... Three level three of two Mort Street. So um, yeah, just come and come by and say hello. But thanks very much for telling your story. It was a great story, a really interesting story, and I think that journalism piece. You know, it, it's a heritage that I share as well. You know, coming from a different background into journalism, out of journalism into storytelling of all sorts of you know different types. And I, and I think I well, everyone knows who listens to this podcast. I'm an absolute massive enthusiast for the fact that we now you know this ability that technology gives us to create, to curate, to distribute to really take hold um, and of the stories that we've got to tell to reach out to those audiences directly to create that sort of compelling content. It is really such an exciting time for people who are in um, the comms business. Our time has come. You know, we've gone from the colouring in department or the car wash or whatever you want to call it. We're now getting much more centrally located into the um, strategic heart of the organisations. And as you very articulately um, expressed there, particularly in a crisis, you know, comms must be right at the heart of the organisation with the trust of the senior leadership because if, if you don't have it there, um, 
they're not going to get the value and you're not going to be able to enjoy your job and be able to, to create that value that you're there for. So thanks very much for coming in. And um, to you, the audience, thank you very much for joining us once again. Fantastic uh, interview there with Alison Wright from the National Gallery of Australia. Much to be taken out of that, everyone. So, so go away, have a listen and apply some of that attitude and um, uh, skill and knowledge that we've just acquired there from Alison. So thank you very much for tuning in again this week. And we'll be back at the same time again next week. So thank you very much. And it's bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.